It is March 8th, 2018. My name is Joel Tillis, and you have tuned in to The Soul Trap. We trust that wherever and whenever this broadcast finds you, it finds you in good health, good spirits, and most of all, on that good and narrow way. It is a beautiful day here on the west coast of Florida. About 75 degrees, the sun is shining, the air is crisp and cool, and man, I'm telling you, if it was this beautiful every day of the year, I could not afford to live here. Wherever you're living, whatever the weather's like, if you're saved and on your way to heaven, if you've been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, it is a great day to be alive. You never know, this might be the day, this might be the night, this might be the very 24-hour period when Jesus Christ comes again. Thanks for taking the time, as always, to listen. Please do check out The Soul Trap on Facebook uh, and be in prayer for us. We're getting ready to uh, move The Soul Trap forward a little bit. We're going to be putting together a website in the near future. We're going to be doing some actual material and uh, uh, some things that I think we'll be able to get out to you. But we definitely want to hear from you. Send us an email. You can reach me at Pastor Tillis at suncoastbaptistchurch.org. That's Pastor Tillis at suncoastbaptistchurch.org. You can send us a message on Facebook. That's usually the best way to go to the Soul Trap and send us a message via Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. love to hear your story. Uh, if you do write us an email, please take the time. We want to get to know you, and uh, we don't boost the podcast. We don't uh, advertise it a great deal. It is what it is. It's an organic group of like-minded people. We don't all agree on everything all the time. But um, it is a group of like-minded people that are interesting. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of you guys have sent me material. A lot of you guys have shared ideas and thoughts. And I I feel like, in a way that I learned from you, uh, many times as much as you learned from me, I appreciate the prayers, appreciate the support. And uh, it's just good always to to, uh, have a support system around you. And I hope that you feel that way when you listen to The Soul Trap. Um. It is not so much me just bloviating at you, but I think it's us venting what we all, as like-minded people, have in our hearts. I um, I want to talk to you today about the subject of spiritism, or rather spiritualism. I really do believe, ladies and gentlemen, that the more America pulls away and rejects the light that has been given to her, A light, mind you, that is beyond anything that any Gentile nation has ever really known. The less influence that Christians have in this nation, the more we crash into paganism, heathenism, and quite frankly, let's just call it what it is, pure, unadulterated Satanism. The more we are going to pull away from God, the more we are going to encounter spiritual forces and powers of Satan. You know, it's something that has been real to many of our missionaries that are on the front lines. But in the United States of America, I believe in large part based upon the providential and prophetical covering that God has placed on our nation, we have not for the most part seen what the rest of the heathen world has seen. When it comes to the powers of darkness, when it comes to the manifestation of Satan's abilities. But I do believe that the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more we're going to see pure, unadulterated Satanism. I do not necessarily, and I have said this before, think that it's going to look like what Hollywood wants us to think that it looks like. I don't think it's going to look like a bunch of kids and togas dancing around a bonfire in the middle of the field. I don't believe that at all. But in technology, in science, in government, in education, 
probably most profoundly in religion, the powers of darkness are going to manifest themselves more and more. I was reminded of this again recently as I was given a book by a couple in my church, a precious brother by the name of Wayne and his wife Sandra, wonderful godly people, an older couple, served God for many years. They gave me a book by Ben Alexander called Entertaining Demons Unaware. And although I don't agree with everything in the book, it is a powerful reminder that you and I as Christians are in a spiritual battle, something that was very clear to the early church, and I think maybe something that has been lost and maybe even vilified by the charismatic crowd, but something you and I should always be aware of. The book, Entertaining Demon Unaware, uh, is the true story of one man's search for life after death and how it ends in an unexpected, demonic, bone-chilling visitation from the spirit world. In the true story, as I just mentioned, it is the true story of one man's plunge, and I'm reading the back of the book now. It's the true story of one man's plunge into the deepest depths of the occult. Tucked within his story is another story, however, that of a family's weekly Saturday night live communication with their dead father. A very profound and gripping uh, trick, basically, that the powers of darkness played on this man. Ben, Ale- ben Alexander shares his testimony and involvement with the Miller family seances from table tipping to automatic writing to trans mediumship to the highest level of psychic phenomenon known as materialization. After narrowly escaping these spiritualistic activities, Ben has spent the remainder of his life investigating the occult and occultic practices. With 60 years of experience and study of spiritualism behind him, Ben knows what he is talking about and is an expert in this field of study. He is also a Christian who was saved out of that by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And what a glorious thought that is to know that no matter how powerful Satan may be, Jesus Christ is far more powerful. What is spiritualism? It's not something that is used as much today as it used to. And although the form of spiritualism has changed with the times, It is very much around today, maybe even more so than it has ever been. But what is spiritualism? Well, in a very technical sense, spiritualism is a metaphysical belief that the world is made up of at least two fundamental substances, matter and spirit. Now, we often don't think of spirit as substance, and in fact, the very word betrays a decidedly non-substance connotation. But from the spiritualism point of view, there is a substance to the spirit world that can be, under certain conditions, manifest in the physical realm. Now, this very broad metaphysical distinction is further developed into many and various forms by the inclusion of details about what spiritual entities exist, such as a soul, the afterlife, spirits of the dead, deities, and mediums as well as details about the nature of the relationship between the spirit and matter. And from the very beginning of time, up until now, and until Jesus Christ comes again, that has always been a very fascinating thing, which I think, in a sense, and I don't want to digress too much, but I think, in a sense, gives us maybe an interesting, albeit ambiguous, insight into what the Garden of Eden was like. In the Garden of Eden, obviously, we're not just dualistic in nature as a Bible believer. I believe in the trichotomy of man, body, soul, and spirit. But in the Garden of Eden, man was, however 
capable, far more in tune with the spirit world than we are now. Something was lost there in the fall. And I think man, in his sinful way, has always desired to get back to that. I think it's very interesting that when Satan threw that ploy out, threw that trick out at Eve and said, ye shall be as gods, I think the very thing that she was looking for is the very thing that we lost. The ability to interact with the other side, the other dimension. And so there has always been this interest, this passion, this curiosity between the spirit world and matter. It is also a term, spiritualism is also a term that is used for various psychic or paranormal practices and beliefs recorded throughout humanity's history and in a variety of cultures. And we're not talking about just a few here. We're talking about going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Again, we're a spiritual being by very constitution. That is what Satan is, a cherub. A spiritual being by constitution was able to inhabit a being that was physically rooted in this dimension. Spiritualistic traditions appear deeply rooted also in shamanism, something that uh, we see being elevated, albeit in a more technical sense, more and more today. Now, one writer states it in this way, mediumship is a modern form of shamanism. And much of what you see from Hollywood and rock and roll are grounded in the shamanistic tradition, a reality that is not lost on those from other cultures who are, for the first time, introduced to the American cult, however technologically and sophisticatedly and sophisticated it has advanced. It is at best shamanism, which is, at worst, spiritualism. Now, a psychic is to be one of those that are able to connect and link these two worlds. A psychic is defined as someone endowed with exceptional sensitivity to the occult dimension who experiences visions and revelations. Spiritualism, then, is the belief that spirits are able to communicate with the living by agency of a medium. The earliest recorded use of the word is in 1796, and it was used by the prominent 18th century spiritualist Emanuel Swedenborg. The term, quote, spiritualism has come to have different meanings. In some cases, it means a broad working definition that is used as a term that would include the multifaceted belief and a vital principle within living beings. That's a mouthful. But simply put, a supernatural, a paranormal, divine, incorporeal being, spirit, anima, whatever you want to state, spiritualism is the term that is used whereby the other side is able to communicate with our side via a conduit, be that a woman, a tool, uh, a man, a psychic, whatever you want to name there. Adherents of spiritualistic movements believe that the spirits are the dead who survive uh, the dead from mortal life, and that sentient beings from spirit worlds can and do communicate with the living. Very, very rarely do spiritualists actually believe that these are demons. They believe that they are human souls. Now, we're not going to get into the nuances of whether the souls are good or bad or how they become good or bad or those kind of things like that. But the spiritualist, for the most part, believes that what they are dealing with, what they are contacting, are the spirits of the dead that have passed on. Much like the witch at Endor who conjured up Samuel. Now, again, I don't want to get into a theological argument here whether or not that was truly Samuel or not. But she was able to conjure up something or someone in this particular case. Now, the history of modern spiritualism 
was an article that was written by uh, David Johns here. And he says, modern spiritualism dates from 1848 when the Fox sisters of Hydesville, New York, produced knocking sounds that were alleged to be messages from the spirit world. Knocking sounds. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, at the risk of being considered politically incorrect, one finds that across anthropological lines, women are far more adept at psychic ability, and they are far more oftentimes the subject of demonic possession and demonic obsession. These Fox sisters hit it big, though. Soon after John D. Fox, his wife and six children, moved into their new home, they began to hear mysterious rapping noises. Two daughters, Maggie and Kate, gradually became brave enough to clap their hands and snap their fingers in an effort to elicit these knocking sounds. A series of raps responded to their initiative. And there the story begins to unravel or unfold, depending on what your view is. Soon, a simple code of communication was set up between the Fox sisters and the invisible spirit who apparently resided in their home. With time, Maggie and Kate learned that the spirit who made these rapping noises was that of a murdered peddler whose remains were actually buried in the cellar of their home. Yay! News of the Fox sisters' sensational communication with the spirit world traveled rapidly. In their day, it went what you and I would call viral. Robert C. Fuller, writing in his book, Spiritual But Not Religious, Understanding Unchurched America, says, They had, it seems, stumbled upon dramatic proof of life after death. Within months, there were national celebrities. However, the story of the Fox sisters led to an explosion in spiritualist activity in the USA. Tests were carried out in 1851, trying to prove or disprove the sisters and their story. And in fact, the girls appeared to be deliberately producing the knocking themselves, with no participation by the spirits. This exposure, however, did not slow down the growth of spiritualism, nor damage the reputation of the sisters. It's amazing how people will believe what they want to believe, no matter what. In 1988, the Fox Girls revealed that they had actually faked the whole thing. There is no such thing as a spirit manifestation. That I have been mainly instrumental in perpetuating the fraud of spiritualism upon a too confiding public. Many of you already know. It is the greatest sorrow of my life. When I began this deception, I was too young to know right from wrong. Margaret Fox wrote in 1888, quoted by Joseph F. Wren, Searchlight on Physical Research, 1954. So that's the end of the story, right? No. Margaret later said that the confession itself was a deception and returned to the promotion of spiritualism. Amazing. You know, the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. And whenever you find yourself in the spiritual world like this, it is amazing how rampant and profound confusion is. I think the danger is that when we see these kind of things, we either totally embrace or totally reject it. The whole, we, 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 we can't seem to find a balance. It's the whole that has to go. Either we wholly reject it or we wholly embrace it. And the truth is, that the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. It's important to remember the sons of Siva, the seven sons of Siva. 
There's no doubt in my mind that their quote-unquote ministry was simply making a buck. They were making money, lying. Most of whom they were working over were not demon-possessed. But eventually, they did run into one who was, and the outcome was not a good one. By the 1860s and 1870s, one could sit for spirit photographs, attend spirit lectures on a range of progressive social and religious issues, and take part in carefully orchestrated seances at which ghosts materialized. Voices spoke through levitating trumpets, messages wrote themselves on sealed slates, and mediums' bodies emitted disconcerting quantities of a strange, filmy substance known as ectoplasm. Now remember that term, ectoplasm. One thing about the spiritualist movement is that women flourished as leaders within its anti-official organization. Publicists expertly promoted it, making tons of money, exploiting its sensationalist aspects, and many people attended seances simply for the kick, for the entertainment. Spiritualism at its height, at its heyday, was popular, not just because it could entertain and provide comfort to the believer, but it also seemed to bridge and combine uh, what was so desirous, and that was empirical methods and discoveries of science, such as the invisible force of electricity, with religious idea of the life after death. And now, that is where I think we're headed once again. Now, in the end, we're coming full circle back around with uh, the Hydron Collider, with quantum physics, with a lot of these things, there is this huge desire to bridge the gap between the empirical and the spirit world, which was what I believe is going to happen post-rapture. I believe the Antichrist and those beings that come back with him, in some way, shape, or form, will finally bridge what man lost in the Garden of Eden. And that is the ability to unite both empirical, physical, with spiritual ethereal. Now, one of the most influential mediums was a man by the name of Daniel Douglas Holm, who produced some of the most vibrant spirit manifestations. On one occasion, he is said to have actually levitated out of a bedroom window 70 feet above a street and back in again through the living room window. Wow. Holm survived actual attempts to show that he was a fraud. In fact, he was never truly fully proven that he was a fraud. The movement gained further credibility with the support of distinguished people, as they always do, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. No, not Sherlock Holmes. Yes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle became a huge spiritualist, along with the scientist Sir Oliver Large and the journalist Hanan Swaffer. So is spiritualism for real? Are they for real? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believed it. He puts it this way, quote, The conclusion then of my long search after truth is that in spite of the occasional fraud which spiritualists deplore, and in spite of wild imaginings which they discourage, there remains a great solid core in this movement which is infinitely nearer to positive proof than any other religious development with which I am acquainted. Note, he doesn't throw the hole out. The truth is somewhere in between. 
Now, despite being set back by supposed fakes and disproofs, spiritualism actually began to thrive in a very profound way. In the late 1920s and early 30s, there were around one quarter of a million practicing spiritualists and some 2,000 spiritualist societies in the United Kingdom. In addition to flourishing, microcultures of platform mediums and home circles were popping up all over. Now, with that as a backdrop, the book that I mentioned earlier, Entertaining Demons Unaware, the story of Ben Alexander being rescued from the clutches of the spiritual world, of the spirit world and spiritism, seems to ring true in a lot of ways. And the thing about it is, as you read this book and you begin to process through, you have to ask yourself, simply because you have not experienced something, does that make it untrue? Certainly simply because he has stated that he's experienced these things does not make it true. But is it simply because we have not in America experienced these kind of things yet? Do we discount them or is there a reality? Is there a power? Is there a vibe that is growing stronger day by day in our culture, in our homes, in our churches? So let me just read to you maybe some outtakes from this book that I found interesting. On page 12 of Ben Alexander, he writes the following. The spirits who appeared in our circle did so in many different ways. One phenomenon that took place fairly regularly was a spirit that would consistently identify itself by making a sign or spelling its name prior to our receiving a message. There was another spirit, however, that never did this. Instead, we would all first feel an uneasy, foreboding presence in the room, and it would become cold. We could sense something very evil and would feel overshadowed by the spirit. It would very deliberately and slowly spell out the name and the same message every time on the Ouija board. All is dark. Pray for me. All is dark. Pray for me. As I reflect back, I, know, I now know that sadly all of us in the room were lost souls. One time the Bible on a nearby table rose in the air and slammed against the wall. We came to the conclusion it was a lost soul. The irony was that we prayed to God over a family Bible before starting the seance, and we believed that what took place was from God. At other times, those of us in the circle would do table tipping. After a question was asked, a table upon which we had placed our hands would tap out number of a letter in the alphabet, spelling out a message. Eventually, the Spirit said to us that we are far too advanced to play around with the tables and Ouija boards. The Spirit stated that we believe that one among you, Jeff, being young and strong, would make a good medium. So Jeff became the medium for our circle. Sometimes through Jeff's mouth, we would actually hear the Spirit's talking to us in unmistakable voices. We believed these voices, just like the messages on the Ouija board and from the table tipping were messages from the dead. So we disposed of the Ouija board, and Jeff was completely controlled by the spirits. Jeff often told me while he was deep in a trance, he had no idea what was going on. Although we were not aware of it at the time, in reality, Jeff became a substitute savior for the sitters in our group. We all focused our hopes on him as we sought answers for our individual needs. Jeff was a very strong medium, and many different voices would speak through him. Also, while Jeff was in a trance, many different entities would take control of his vocal cords. Even more than that, his entire 
personality would change. We would look at his face and could tell from his expression who would be speaking next. Once, when an American Indian was in control, Jeff actually looked like an American Indian. He also spoke in different languages. If he began speaking Chinese, he not only spoke Chinese, but also began taking on the very appearance of a Chinese man. We came to call this phenomenon transfiguration. We were excited about the prospect of one day reaching our circle's goal of materialization, the actual physical manifestation of a spirit entity. This, by the way, is the goal of the spirits as well. It is the holy grail of all involved, the full physical manifestation from those on the other side. Hmm. On page 40, Mr. Alexander gives us an insight into exactly how some of these seances played out. He actually quotes a man by the name of Dr. Baker here who wrote about being involved in a seance. He states, On arriving at 8 p.m. at the home of a medium, I was given a chance to talk to and examine the medium by the name of Alex Harris, as well as the room. It was air-conditioned and otherwise built solidly like any normal bedroom. In one corner, a heavy black curtain had been draped across as one might rig up a temporary wardrobe. Below was solid flooring and the walls were stone. It was quite impossible for anything human to gain entrance to the corner except by being visible to all in the room. The curtain closed a space barely left enough to take an ordinary chair and the medium sitting on it reclined in position. There were two rows of chairs. I sat in the front row near the angle, being given the most suitable chair for the observation point of view. The seated medium was barely six feet from me. The room was fitted with some half dozen small red electric light globes, which gave off a dim light that was nevertheless more than sufficient to show any observer what was going on in the room. There were few rules of conduct during the session. It was necessary only that we did not grasp the materialized forms too tightly, lest the medium himself be damaged in some way. We were expected to join in the singing of hymns and saying of prayers as best we could. Now let that line sink in on you. Ladies and gentlemen, spiritualism flourished in a post-Christian United Kingdom. These people were conjuring spirits while singing hymns and praying to God. Hmm. The room was put into darkness. After some five or ten minutes of singing, a vague silver-white outline of a form peered from the curtain in the corner. The medium, not fully entranced, was able to stand and appeared through the curtains with the form of what was said to be his dead sister. Sitting next to me was the medium's wife. She told me the object of this was to show that the forms were quite separate from the medium himself. A tall, well-formed male, human-like form, then parted the curtains and came close to the group of watchers. He at first addressed all present, describing then the control which he and other guides would maintain over the sitting. He also stressed the need for care in handling the forms. I was most impressed by his demeanor, logic, and self-expression. He was certainly an entity with its own personality 
and intelligence. A little later, another guide came through the curtain and spoke to me personally. I held his hands and then felt all over the face, which seemed to be perfectly formed. I noted carefully the warmth of the flesh and the firmness of the limbs. The pulse beat seemed normal. Veins, hair, prominence, etc. all seemed to be present as with normal human beings. Every few minutes, the materialized form had to return to the curtained corner to quote-unquote recharge. Sometimes there were three or four forms in the room at the same time. It was quite easy to see the medium sitting in trance when the curtain were open wide to let into the room some new being. I noticed that the forms shuffled and made noises with their feet. This indicated to me considerable mass. If you can imagine yourself beneath water some six feet deep and a jellyfish floating up from the floor with its attending appendages trailing after it, And when reaching the surface, suddenly turning into a human being, you will have a vague idea of how these forms arose from the floor in front of the medium, connected to him only by the merest trace of a cord of substance. At the end of a materialization, the entity sank slowly into the floor in front of the medium. Now remember, remember, ladies and gentlemen, where the witch at Endor conjured up Samuel? Conjured him up. I see gods ascending. The writer goes on to say, the extraordinary variety of materializing forms was striking. There were children, two red Indians, a mother with a newborn child, and men, old and young, tall and short. During the whole session of some three hours, there must have been more than 30 materializations. One was struck particularly by the variety of personality and demonstrations of intelligence amongst the quote-unquote guides themselves. And the intimate nature of the conversation between the bereaved and their materialized loved one. That is some pretty heavy stuff. Is that guy lying about his experiences or did he experience that? Now, we have all heard of ancient sorcery, witches, spirits, spells, and demonic possessions. But my question is, if that was going on, in the 19th century, if that was going on in the early 20th century, what do you think is going on now? Could it be that sorcery is alive and well? Spiritualism is alive and well in our society today, far beyond anything we can imagine. This is not something that is isolated to the Old Testament or isolated to the Gospels or delegated uh, down the road to the tribulation epistles. Absolutely not. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy, a pastor, the New Testament church. In Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. How? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now I will leave this for a theological debate of another time, but my question is, in the reading of that, is it possible for a believer to depart from the faith? I know that they cannot lose their salvation based upon them being placed inside the body of Christ. I'm not in any way, shape, or form intimating that a believer in this dispensation can lose their salvation, but can they become so ensnared to the point that they would depart from the faith, ensnared by doctrines of devils, ensnared by seducing spirits, Second Timothy would seem to imply that very thing in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. 
if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, who are taken captive by, the, by Satan at his will. Science, church, technology, Hollywood. I'm not a teetotaler when it comes to TV, don't get me wrong, by any stretch of the imagination. I believe we need to teach our children discernment and all of the things that go along, and I like my Marvel movies as good as the next one. And I, I'm not trying to say that if you have a TV, it's of the devil, but my dear friends, when you turn on the TV and you see Hollywood, the concerts, the plays, the whole thing, how much of it is spiritual in nature, how much of it is seducing spirits, how much of what we're watching on TV is demonic. Even Socrates makes the connection between actors and possession. He states, quote, in like manner, the muse, first of all, inspires men herself because they are inspired and possessed. They are simply inspired to utter that which the muse impels them. For not by art or knowledge do you say what you say, but by possession. The occult in Hollywood goes back as far as quote-unquote stars were on the silver screen. In the 1920s, known as the Great Lover, Robert Valentino and his wife Natasha were both involved in the occult. One writer follows up by saying Natasha wrote many of the scripts that Robert acted in. Every night, Natasha would hold a seance, calling forth help from the spirit world in her creative undertaking. Then pencil and paper in hand, she would go into a trance and start writing. After her outpourings were typed up, they were brought to the set the next day and given to the director. In the 1930s, actress Mae West, who later on would grace almost all of the B-29 bombers and the fighter Mustang, fighter pilot, all of that stuff. We've all seen the pictures of Mae West on the side of the planes. Mae West called a one-woman sexual revolution, the queen of sex, and even the statue of libido. Once said this, quote, when I'm good, I'm very good. And when I'm bad, I'm better. Her work helped topple the biblical values of North America. West's contact with the spirit world was responsible for her producing the scripts that catapulted her into the movie scene. She let herself be used as a medium for spirits and would hold evenings of psychic readings. West's psychic Kenny Kingston tells us that when she was upset, no one had been able to come up with a script idea. That's what she would get upset about. She had walked out of her room one night saying, forces, forces, come to me and help me write a script. She would begin to hear voices and images as the plot was revealed to her. May would summon stenographers to work with her around the clock as she would lie in bed in a trance-like state, dictating as the spirits entered. How about the 1950s? Lucille Ball, a famous film star in the 1940s, but chose to go back to TV acting in 1951, something that was absolutely unheard of. Nobody did that. In those days, nobody went from Hollywood to TV. Why did she? Well, it was the spirit, the spirit of actress Carol Lombard, she claimed, who guided Lucille Ball into taking a chance and accepting the offer to star in I Love Lucy. The glamorous comedian who had died, Carol Lombard, in an airplane crash in 1942, apparently appeared to Lucy in 1951. Because Lucy Ball accepted the spirits urging to, quote, take a chance, she made television history. 
The greatest sexual icon of the 20th century herself, Marilyn Monroe, was known for entertaining, in, entering into deep trances. In fact, another psychic tells us that she would, quote, draw attention from the spirit world, asking for their guidance. And Monroe herself said one day, Jekyll and Hyde, more than two, I'm so many people, they shock me. I wish it was just me. In the 60s, Peter Sellers, best known for his role in the Pink Panther film series, says this about acting, quote, It's rather like being a medium and laying yourself wide open and saying, I want a character to inhabit my body, or I want a character to take charge of me so that I can produce what I hope to produce. Another author stated it this way, occultism not only shaped early Hollywood, but continues as a common theme in practice today. We're not talking about ancient antiquity. We're talking about up-to-date modern. One of the most well-known and yet kind of hush-hush was Robin Williams. Literally, Robin Williams said, yeah, literally, it's like possession. All of a sudden you're in, you just get this energy that starts going. But there's also that thing, it's it's possession. It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde where you really can become this other force. In the same article, author James Kaplan says this, With a gift for mimicry and improvisation that verged on demonic possession, Williams could even approach the artistry of his idol Jonathan Winters, a man whose genius took him once or twice over the edge into mental illness. In the movie The Devil's Advocate, director Taylor Hackford says this about actor Keanu Reeves. Keanu's a very complex guy with, well, how can I say it? Lots of demons in him. And I was trying to tap and utilize that. Leonardo DiCaprio's director, Angika Holland, stated it this way. Leo's like a medium. Like a medium. Like a medium. He opens his body and his mind to receive messages coming from another person's life. Now, if these actors, ladies and gentlemen, are this involved in the occult, we have to ask ourselves, what is coming out of our TVs? What is coming out of our radios? What is being portrayed in front of us? Is spiritualism real? I believe the vast majority of what you see is the sons of Siva trying to make a buck. That's all. But occasionally... Occasionally, they run into the real deal. Before I forget, remember I mentioned to you about ectoplasm? Remember? Where have we heard that before? Oh, come on. You know where you've heard it before. Ghostbusters. Ectoplasm. The green goo. And what was the... Uh, what was the uh, the ghost, the lovable little ghost that everyone, what was it, the slime, what was it, uh, slime, I can't remember his name, but oh, he was a lovable little ghost, and then there was a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man that was possessed and all that, but, but ectoplasm, I remember when I was younger, they even sold it, you could get it, and then of course, strangely, it was green slime-like substance, which, if we connect dots, is what the beginning of the show Nickelodeon, the kids' show, would slime everybody with green ectoplasm-like stuff. But I digress. What is ectoplasm? Ectoplasm is said to be formed in a technical sense by spiritualists. It is said to be formed by physical mediums when in a trance state. 
This material is excreted as a gauze-like substance from the orifices on the medium's body, and spiritual entities are said to drape this substance over their non-physical body, enabling them to interact in the physical and real universe. Some accounts claim that the ectoplasm begins clear and almost invisible, but darkens and becomes visible as the psychic energy becomes stronger. Still, other accounts state that in extreme cases, ectoplasm will develop a strong odor. According to some mediums, the ectoplasm cannot occur in light conditions as the ectoplasmic substance would disintegrate. For spiritualists, ectoplasm is a real thing. Many have stated that they have seen it and experienced it. So why bring that up? Ghostbusters just kind of, you know, they probably grabbed that. They probably wikipedia it. Hey, let's add that in there. Well, maybe not. Maybe there's a dot to connect here. Ectoplasm, spiritualism, Ghostbusters, and Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd? Dan Aykroyd. I'm reading to you now from page 55 of Ben Alexander's book, the book we've been referencing here. In an article by Benjamin Sarlin, The Daily Beast, October 26, 2009, the above statement, Ghostbusters is real, has been attested to as being true by Dan Aykroyd and his father, Peter Aykroyd, whose real-life family history with the supernatural inspired the movie Ghostbusters. The following, following newspaper article of an interview with Peter and Dan Aykroyd relates the story of how the film Ghostbusters was taken from the seance room to the screen. Peter claims that since the time he was eight years old, Peter being the father of Dan Aykroyd, since the time he was an eight-year-old boy growing up in Ontario, communication with the dead was a regular occurrence. It was part of a long series of seances conducted by his grandfather, Dr. Samuel A. Aykroyd, a dentist with a side career as a psychic investigator and the family's medium. Walter Ashard, who would channel the spirit's voices through his body. To Peter, communicating with the spirit world was nothing frightening or out of the ordinary, but rather something normal. Quote, even extraordinary things in life experienced enough become commonplace, said Peter, if you see a ghost ten times. It's like the family pet, the younger Aykroyd, Dan, interrupted, completing his father's sentence. The story of the Aykroyd's four-generation obsession with the occult as well as the psychic investigators who inspired them, is detailed in Peter Aykroyd's book, A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters. In fact, it was this obsession that led Dan, who grew up listening to the tales of his great-grandfather's experiments, to further research the subject from an academic standpoint. I digress now for just a moment, but if you remember in the original movie Ghostbusters, these guys were not morons. These guys were not you know, walking around with tin, tin uh, aluminum foil hats. They had PhDs working in colleges. I return to the article. Quote, it was around the time, Dan Aykroyd states, it was around the time that I had just finished Saturday Night Live that I read an article on quantum physics and parapsychology in the American Society for Physical Research and thought, why not marry the actual scientific discipline of psychic research to an old-style comedy? Peter said he was elated with early drafts of the script, especially the opening scene in which a ghost wreaks havoc in the New York Public Library. It was a pure poltergeist phenomenon and absolutely true to form. Let's face it, he, Dan, was writing this thing from conviction. 
There was truth in that, Peter said, even though it seemed fantastic. Both father and son are true believers in the spiritualism and are all too happy to discuss the many technical details and historical figures associated with the world beyond, many of which are recorded in this book. Dan recalled a time while sitting in a family farmhouse he was planning to tear down when he felt a massive jolt of electricity. Hmm, that's interesting. Jesus saw Satan falling from heaven like a what? But I digress. He was planning to tear down when he felt a massive jolt of electricity and witnessed pops and sparks all around him. He said it was just like I had been struck by, oh, there it is, I remember now, uh, lightning. Dan later identified the occurrence in psychic literature as supernatural, quote, arcing. Whatever the cause, it was enough to convince him to renovate the farmhouse rather than tear it down. Like Aykroyd before them, Dr. Aykroyd before them, the pair shared their hopes of one day witnessing documented proof, the holy grail of ghost hunting, materialization, a phenomenon described by spiritualists in which ghostly forms composed of ectoplasm, the slimy substance made famous in Ghostbusters, emerge from mediums. Materialization was something Peter's grandfather wanted to experience. Dan acknowledges his own passionate fascination and enthusiasm for the activities of beings and entities that are beyond our plane of existence. Dan, true to his lighthearted comedic nature, added, What red-blooded North American boy wouldn't embrace a good ghost story? Ah, ladies and gentlemen, there are always dots to be connected. I'm so glad that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I'm so glad that I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. I'm so glad that he's coming again. And I'm so glad that through the light of the word of God, I and you can see those dots. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. <laughs>